we are live. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. As always, I am your host, Kyle Bird. With me is my co-host, Matt Parmley. And we are thrilled today to have an extremely special guest, the the prolific special effects makeup creature designer, Steve Wang, who shouldn't need any introduction, but just in case... Uh, just to rattle off a list, I mean, the, what has Steve Wang not worked on? Um, everything from Predator, Beetlejuice, Evil Dead 2, Reign of Fire, Gremlins 2, Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Uh, the list is immense. Unfortunately, obviously, we won't be able to cover everything, but uh, we are going to um, talk a lot about his career and we're gonna try and stick to mostly kind of things in the tokusatsu realm obviously we will be going outside of that as well um, because steve did direct the guyver and the guyver dark hero um so welcome uh makeup creature designer practical effects legend slash director steve wang thank you glad to be here um, so, uh, I'm going to kind of start, uh, at the beginning, since this is a podcast that focuses a lot on Japanese monsters, I, I have to ask, um, from what I understand, you've been a fan of tokusatsu since childhood. Um, how were you introduced to that genre and maybe what are some, some of your favorite shows or, or films? Well, I was first, uh, exposed to Ultraman, um, I think it was 1974, I believe. And uh, I was in the third grade, and I was living in Taiwan at the time. And uh, one day I was going in, on my bus going to school. There was this giant side of a building that was painted up, and there's just these amazing group of uh, crazy-looking dudes with you know silver and red armor uh, and fighting all these monsters. And it just blew my little mind. And I thought, what the heck is that? I got to school talked to all my friends you know and they were just like we gotta go see this movie whatever it is you know it was it was ultraman so after school we went to go see the movie and again mind blown this was the movie that was actually made in thailand with the all thai cast ah, and yeah, that movie is controversial <laughs> these days yes yeah apparently because <laughs> uh, you know after i seen it in taiwan uh i had not seen it for Gosh, it must have been at least 20 years or so, 25 years before they re they finally released it on, on Laserdisc uh, from Japan. So I got it. I got a Laserdisc from Japan finally and watched it and like watching like my childhood all over again. Um, but regardless, it was a really silly movie. And of course, I didn't remember all the silliness. But it, but um, yeah, so that that just changed my life afterwards. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at that young age. But I knew whatever it was I was going to do, it had to have something fantastic like Ultraman in it. Were you a fan <clears throat> of monsters like Godzilla and Gamera, or are you more into the superhero or the Sentai stuff? Um, I, I love Godzilla. I love Gamera and all the giant monster stuff. Um, and I watched, you know, I've seen all of them. But I think if I had to choose between the, the, these, the superheroes versus the monsters, I think I, I tend to be favoring more towards the superheroes. Like, I love Kamen Rider. I love Kikaida. Like, Kikaida, I saw 1975. And again, uh, Gorinja, you know, the original Power Ranger. Mm -hmm. um, that All that stuff was just, you know, so awesome to me. And I remember being so obsessed with it 
that uh, every every Sunday, you know, uh, of every month, or the first Sunday of every month, I would go to Little Tokyo with my my friends or my aunts or my uncles, whoever would take me, and I would go there and, and buy a little uh, diecast metal figure of one of these superheroes um, for my collection because I just love them so much. Okay, so um, would you say that that was kind of your gateway into, I guess, your fascination with? special effects particularly monster design and and you know how monsters are brought to life on film um maybe not not at that time you know not not at that age um because i immigrated to the united states back in 75 you know it was about a year after i saw the ultraman movie and when i came to the u.s it was about a month away from halloween so i went to a toy store and i saw all these latex masks of all these monsters in it and that again blew my mind because i you know up until then all the masks that were available in taiwan were printed on cardboard and you had little holes that punched out and you know and they were really cheap and cheesy uh but back even back then i knew i had an obsession with masks because i had seen the local theater had a, a coloring contest in taiwan and the winner would get a little vacuform ultraman mask and seeing that little plastic face of ultraman with a see-through lens just was like oh i, I gotta have that of course, I didn't win, but a year later when I came to the U.S. and saw these latex masks and I actually got my grandmother to buy me one, that uh, started me collecting Halloween masks for the next four years. Um, it wasn't until about four years in and being exposed to a lot of cool, you know, universal monsters like the, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is one of my favorite monsters of all time, King Frankenstein, you know, uh, uh, the Hammer, Dracula movies. Uh, Wolfman. I mean, you know, all these things just, you know, over time, I just realized, wow, I, this is what I want to do. I want to make monsters for a living. I want to do makeup. I want to do creatures. I want to make masks. So how did you, I guess, um, kind of break in to that as a profession? You know, how did you learn the crafts involved and kind of get into it um, as a, something you could do for a living? Um, it was really tough in the beginning because, you know, back then, by the year that I started to, to make the stuff, uh, it was 1979, the summer of 79, and um, information was really hard to find. I mean, there were a, a few uh, theater makeup books that had some information. Um, movies like, um, you know, uh, American Werewolf, Howling, that hasn't even come out yet. Uh, but, the, you know, but, but King Kong, you know, the, the one with Rick Baker was in there. Like, Rick, was, Rick Baker is one of my heroes as a kid. You know, he still is. You know, he, he's influenced me so much and got me to really want to do this stuff. You know, makeup legends like Dick Smith and Stan Winston, who was, who was one of my mentors, and, you know, years later down the line. Uh, seeing all these things that they have done. Uh, so what, what you have to do back then is that because we had no Internet, there's no YouTube, information was hard to find. Occasionally there'll be a book that comes out that deal with, deals with them, some of the subject. But what you would do is you'd be able to find some photos from monster magazines like Famous Monsters that would have a picture of somebody doing a sculpture or somebody doing a mold. And you have to kind of be a sleuth and kind of piece things together and go, oh, I see that they have, there's a sculpture here. Oh, there's plaster. They're making, what are they making here? You know, oh, there's foam rubber. Over time, you kind of piece things together. And you essentially, you, you have to teach yourself how to do it, which is what I did. And a lot of the artists from my generation, that's how we learn. We taught ourselves. What would you consider your first real breakout film as an effects artist? Um, would definitely have to be Predator. 
um, that I was really fortunate to have gotten on. I, you know, after high school um, or near the end of high school, I had my, my parents wanted me to go to college and I talked to a bunch of my teachers and I explained to them what I wanted to do. And you know what? They, they advised me against going to college. They say, you know what? You'll just be wasting time because what you want to do, they don't teach in college. And college should be a place of education to help you, you know, get a career in what you want to do with your life. And I thought that was very sound advice. So I told my parents I wasn't going to college. That I was just going to move to L.A. Uh, after high school. And then just with my portfolio that I had built up, uh, I was just going to try to get work. And so uh, I did that uh, with my 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 uh, my good friend Matt Rose, the late Matt Rose, who passed away just last year. Um, you know, we had done a bunch of masks together, and then we moved down to L.A. And I was lucky enough to get a job at Stan Winston's the first week I was there, and then uh, got a chance to learn some technical stuff. Got to do a lot of sculpting, and then uh, within a year's time, I got to do Predator. Uh, and I was only 20 years old, and it was it was an amazing opportunity Stan Winston had given me. And then after that film came out, it changed my life. Literally, my career was cemented, you know, uh, and I, I was never out of work again after that. Was Predator the first film that you shared cr um, uh, credits with uh, Screaming Mad George on? Um, no. Actually, I had met George, I want to say, about six, seven months before that. Um, earlier that year, I had went to, I, I'd gone to Boss Films, uh, which they were working on uh, Poltergeist 2, and they were working on Big Trouble in Little China, and also the first incarnation of Predator. It was called Hunter back then. So I was hired there. They got me into the Sculptors Union, and that's where I met Screen Mad George. Uh, the first day, he was the first guy I met first day. And instantly we hit it off, and we just became the best of friends, and we're still great friends, uh, you know. Now it's been thirty-five years. Were you around uh, for Predator when they had uh, the original creature design, and Van Damme mm -hmm. was gonna fit in the suit and all that stuff? Yeah, yep. I was. I'm probably the only guy that had actually worked on both films, both versions. <laughs> a lot of people didn't know that because uh, because I was a I was a sculptor at Boss Films. So I didn't design it. I didn't, you know, plan it or engineer it or anything like that. I basically was a sculptor, and I sculpted some parts and stuff for it. So I watched that whole thing go down. I met Jean-Claude Van Damme when he was there for the fittings and all that stuff. And I was also there when, you know, they got the news that the whole show had shut down and they weren't going to use the creature. So, and then, you know, I guess six months later, I ended up back on the project at Stan Winston's. Uh, a funny little story. Uh, before before the Stan Winston incarnation of Predator, um, I was working on Evil Dead Two uh, with Doug Beswick, and then uh, my 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 roommate at the time, Matt Rose, was working for Rick Baker, and he told me, "Oh, you know what? Rick was asking about your availability because he's meeting with Joel Silver about a movie called Predator Hunter, and he said if he got it, that he wanted me and you to head it up, and which and then Rick ended up not getting it, and then Stan got it instead, and so." I just thought, wow, you know, this is in looking back, I think we were destined to work on that film because it, it followed us around. I got to work on the first incarnation. Second one I was called to just in case they were going to do it. And then the third one, I ended up doing it anyway. So it was just one of those funny things. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned Evil Dead 2. Can you, can you tell us anything about working on Evil Dead 2? Any, any stories you could share with us? Um, nothing that interesting. I, I, I worked for uh, Doug Beswick, uh, who was one of the original sculptors that worked with Rick Baker on, on the Star Wars cantina scene. 
Uh, Doug is a is quite an accomplished uh, uh, visual effects artist, stop motion animator. Uh, even back then, in the '80s, he was already very well known, very established. So you know, it was a real honor to work with Doug, and he's just a super sweet, nice guy. And um, she called me in to sculpt the stop motion model for the Linda corpse, the scene where she's dancing and she's like playing with her severed head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the stop the stop motion model that I sculpted for Doug, and I worked on Beetlejuice for Doug as well, some more stop motion stuff. What did you work on for Beetlejuice? Um, there was there was I sculpted some miniature stuff. I, I did like a uh, one inch tall Gina Davis head. That went on a stop motion model for when those big uh, snakes were going through the, the the sand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I sculpted a bunch of stuff for that. Um, I then I worked for uh, Ted Ray, and you know that Beetle Snake sequence where he says, "I, I come for your daughter Chuck," and he's in the, the the stairway becomes the snake. Yeah. That stop motion sequence, uh, I I came in and I painted, I designed a paint job for the snake Beetle Snake, and I painted it as well. Yeah, I I love Beetlejuice. It's one of it's a it's a great movie. Yeah, um, I want to pivot back to to Screaming Mad Joy for just a second. Can you talk a bit more about your collaborations with him and just kind of what your partnership with him has been like? Yeah, um, George is you know to me George is a genius. Like he's he's one of these guys who, you know, he thinks outside the box all the time. He's 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 eccentric. He's really funny to be around. You know, he's. He, um, and when he gets down to designing effect sequences, whatever, he really, in my opinion, he's a genius. I mean, he's so he's so clever in how he conceives of sequences and how he, you know, decides what to build, how to build it, how to shoot it and show it, all that kind of stuff. So when I work with him at Boss Films, you know, we just had this, I don't know, we just hit it off instantly. We go to lunch every day. We just became good friends. And then over the years, after he left Boss and started his own business, I would come in and help him out in some of his projects. And then we ended up directing the Guyver, first Guyver together, you know, and then even though the film wasn't all that great and it was, you know, it, it, the, the film unfortunately was not the film that we wanted to make. It was, it was told to us once we started pre-production that we're going to change everything. And it's going to be this kid's movie. That's like Ninja Turtles and goofy and comedy. And, you know, I kind of went along with the kicking and screaming because I just thought this is bullshit, you know, but okay. <laughs> you know, who, you know, I was 20, I was 24 years old and I was getting to direct a 35 millimeter feature, co-direct a 35 millimeter feature. So what am I going to say? You know, fuck off, you know, <laughs> so, maybe I should have, I don't know. I, I, that's the movie that I'm, I'm, I can honestly say I'm not proud of, you know, I, um, for, for you know what I did anyway, you know I think yeah. that, you know I, I'm not not dogging on anybody else's work. You know everybody was passionate, everybody worked hard. People were awesome on that show. You know it was just me personally. I, I felt like because of the change of direction that we kind of failed the whole the whole franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why when we did Guyver Two, um, you know I, I think it was offered to scream at George at first, and George this this is just not George's genre. He's not into superheroes. He's into like surrealistic Dolly kind of, uh, you know, like deeper kind of, you know, uh, strange kind of movie, like 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 Eraserhead kind of movies. So he didn't want to do it. He told me, oh, you know, they're, they're looking to do this again for really low budget. So I approached the company and I just said, hey, you know, I, I want to do it. If you let me do it. They, they told me the budget. It was like, you know, $900,000. And I was like, what? The first movie was, the first movie was $3 million. Oh, that's uh, a huge step down, yeah. Yeah, second was 900000 and. But then what they said to me was, they said, we don't care anything about this movie. Simply, you just have 
just have one guy for one monster and a cute girl. That's all we care about. And then and I said, you mean I can do whatever I want with this money? And they said, yeah, just deliver that. So I took it. You know, uh, my my partner, my my producing partner, Ray Sasir, and I. I remember walking out of the meeting. Going, yeah, we got the job. We got the money. And then it was like, what now? How do we make? How do we produce the movie? So we went out there. We did a guerrilla style. Shot on 16 millimeter. We, you know, I, I ended up shooting three times longer than we did on on the the first guy for you know less than a third of the money. You know, granted there was some you know the film has some production value problems, but overall I think we did a lot more with the money than you know it wasn't as polished. We did a lot more with the money and the tone was more what I wanted to do with the first guy ever. So and I know that uh, the, the creator Yoshiki Takai was really happy with it. You know, given our our such limited resources, he was very happy that you know I treated the 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 film with so much respect and love. So it sounds like you'd prefer the second your second Giver feature to the first. Oh yeah, the first one doesn't exist in my mind. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I prefer the second one as well. I, I actually love that movie. Thank you. Um, we have a whole, we're, we're going to do a lot more unpacking of the Giver in a moment, but I want to take a quick sort of uh, detour to do a little bit of myth busting with you, Steve. Okay. Um, so there's kind of a myth that's gone down into uh, like tokusatsu fan lore. And uh -huh. uh, it is regarding RoboCop. Um, okay. So it, it it has been said um, in circles that an American fan uh, showed you the Toei series Space Sheriff Gavin that you in turn showed to Rob Bottin um, after you moved to Hollywood, and that was an inspiration for RoboCop. Is that something there's any truth to, or is it <clears throat> kind of uh, completely completely untrue? Okay. <laughs> I, I had only met Rob Bottin one time, and it was a very brief meeting, and it was at some event. Uh, other than that, I've never worked with Rob Bottin. Um, I will tell you, though, and it's very obvious when you look at RoboCop, how much Soriyama's design had uh, influenced. Uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine did a lot of the design work on RoboCop named Miles Tebas, and uh, there was definitely a lot of influence from Soriyama in, in the design. Okay. Yeah. Um... Well, uh, that should put that to rest. Uh, okay, so uh, <laughs> so um, like I said, we, we have a lot of Giver talk that we kind of want to get through. Um, but before we get into the, the first film itself, um, I do want to ask, you know, you said that even with the, uh, the outside um, studio pressures and changing direction and everything, um, you were still very eager to kind of put yourself out there as someone that could co-direct an actual 35 millimeter feature film. Um, what made you decide to get into the directing part of the business? Is, is it something that you are always aspired to, or was it something that you kind of just felt like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot and see how it goes? No, I had, by the time I got to direct the first Giver, I had already shot my first full feature film on super eight called Kung Fu Rascals. I had done. I had spent ten months on weekends shooting that film, so I I rewrapped it, but I hadn't edited it yet and finished the film when the, when the guy came up. Before that, I had made three other short films on my own, um, and I started making uh, Super Eight films when I was eighteen years old. 
kind of by accident at first, um, because, you know, I had this idea to make this Kung Fu Rascals movie, you know, when I was 18, I was just fresh out of high school and I had all my local friends help me. And, um, and the reason I did that was I had a friend that, that was going to film school. He's always talking about making films, but you know, he, but he would never make it. And I thought, well, what's the big deal? Why is it, you know, why do you talk about making all this stuff? And you never make it. So I decided I'm going to make something just see. So just, just as an experiment, just to, to do it. So I did. It took me six months to do this because, you know, organizing people to, to do anything is a nightmare. Um, but I ended up making this movie. I learned a lot doing it. And after making it, I got bit by the film bug. And I was like, wow, I really like making movies. And so after that, when I moved to L.A., I had done another short film that was unfinished. But we had shot a lot of cool stuff that ended up in my Kung Fu Rascals movie. And then I'd done another short film to pitch a feature film called Code 9 that I had done um, that had, you know, sync sound and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, back then, sync sound was a huge deal. <laughs> no idea. Uh, trying to make Super 8 films back then. But um, so, so, you know, it was just a natural progression. I had this, I, you know, I, I love doing makeup effects and, and making monsters. And I, I thought for sure I would never find anything else that would rival that passion mm -hmm. and then and then I, I discovered filmmaking and not only did it rival that passion it, they overtook it to the point where i stepped away from makeup for quite a few years to just do films before i came back to it years later okay um well first of all we're uh the with the first guy ever movie um your frustrations with it are very well documented but if it's any consolation to you steve I like that movie. <laughs> I don't know if that means you know anything what? to you, but yes, I I happen to enjoy it. I it's definitely tonally like <laughs> wrong, but to yeah. me that just that's part of the fun. Like I I showed a friend that movie a couple of years ago and he was just like this is so crazy and weird and like I can't believe something like this even exists because like it's a kids movie but it's also completely grotesque and like so there is a fandom there that the things that pissed you off and probably wanted to make you jump off a cliff when you were making it uh, <laughs> is is because is, is there's a certain point of uh, endearment to it for for some of us. Um, so well, I'm I'm happy to hear it because, I, like I said, I'll you know if people enjoy it, I that's wonderful. I, yeah. I will never take I will never take that away from anyone. You know? Yeah. My, it's like you said, my frustrations were were very personal. Mm -hmm. You know, I personally you know thought it was a terrible movie, but. You know, I happen to like a lot of terrible movies myself, <laughs> right. so you know, I'm not going to blame anyone for, yeah. for liking um, something. Yeah. So, so yeah, I do want to kind of get into how did that job come to you and George, and you know, how did you guys um, uh, land that directing slot? Um, it, the way it happened was um, apparently there's a guy that was Scream at George's agent in Japan named uh, uh, his name was Mr. Wada. I remember, and he he was approached uh, by a film studio to do the uh, to ask if they you know Scream Mad George would do the makeup effects for a Guyver film they're making in Japan, and what he told them was yeah what he told what he told them was that you know instead of having him do the effects why don't you have him direct as well and then make this film in the U S. and so they loved the idea and and so they that's how it all happened so then George called me up. And I was literally near the end of shooting Kung Fu Rascals. Uh, and he says, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get um, this movie to direct. 
but I know you do all this action stuff in all your movies. Do you want to direct second unit? And I said, no, I don't really want to do second unit because, you know, I could just do that. Why would I need to do that? I want to make my own movies. And so he offered me the co-directing uh, position, to which I agreed. And then, you know, he and I, he and I also supervised the, the creature effects as well. And uh, so that's how it all kind of came about. Um, and the way that it ended up breaking down was we actually directed together one day, the very first day. And then afterwards, we split. You know, I was like, he would do second unit while I do main unit. Then I'll do second unit while he while he does main unit. Um, and we've rarely kind of come back together again, uh, except for occasions here and there. But but either way, you know, like George and I just somehow like we're just really good friends, and, and we we respect each other a lot. And, and you know, and so even working as co-directors, I didn't think it was going to work, and it worked out great with George. Like we just we just always got along, and we're you know we were very collaborative with each other. When you don't direct uh, scenes together, what kind of challenges did you face, and and <clears throat> how did you decide who would direct which scene? How did they, how did you make those decisions? Uh, I d- end up doing a lot of the action stuff, you know, uh, like all the stuff in the warehouse and the chase scenes and the alleys and uh, the big you know fight stuff near the the end, um, like a, a lot of the lab scenes leading up to the the, the fight, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, George shot a lot of the the effects, like uh, Mark Hamill turning into a giant cockroach. You know, <laughs> George George directed all that. Uh, we did all the miniature sequences together. Um, George did a bunch of the office scenes with uh, with Balkus, you know, yep, uh, and and Michael Berryman, yeah. And then I did a lot of stuff out in the out in the city of L.A. with the cops and uh, you know and. and so I don't know. I, I, it just kind of just worked out. Like, okay, I'll just take this block and you do this, and while you're doing, you take this block and I'll go shoot a bunch of fight scenes, you know, and that kind of stuff. So you know, it worked out. It worked out pretty well. Did you guys choreograph, uh, choreograph the the fights as well, or is that done by someone else? No, sadly, I did that. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh, you're so hard on yourself. <laughs> I, you know what? Honestly, listen. I watched that movie. I, it, they used to run it on Sci-Fi Channel like constantly when I was a kid. No, yeah, I grew up watching that. Yeah, <laughs> so like I really think so. It. I, it's it's really a movie that has a special place in my heart, both one and and especially two. Um, you obviously then got to work with a bunch of awesome character actors. Mark Hamill, you mentioned Jimmy Walker, Harry mm-hmm. Van yep. Combs, uh, David Gale. So how was it working with that cast? Oh, they were awesome. Mark Hamill, uh, at lunch one time, he told me a Star Wars story, which I was, you know, I, I played it off really kind of cool, you know, coy, but I was giggling like, like, a little, like a little kid. You know, he told me at lunchtime they're doing ADR for, for uh, Empire Strikes Back, and he says, you know, all the actors have gone to lunch, and George is like, yeah, I got to just dub one more line. Can you just stay and do this line? And the line he did was, the first transport is away. The first transport is away. That's Mark Hamill. <laughs> I <laughs> so also... Oh, go ahead. I, I was gonna. Yeah, I was so just like, gonna. Yeah, that's cool, you know. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like that cast is. I. I mean, I. I think all of us can agree that the movie is has problems, but I think at least for me, part of the reason why it is so watchable is because that everyone's bringing it even with the behind the scenes stuff. And I mean, guys like Hamill and Jeffrey Combs. I mean, they're always gonna be. Like on top of their game, I, I was talking to someone that was saying they they didn't like the first guy ever movie, and I, I I pretty much just said, how can you hate a movie where David Gale yells at a toaster? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, you know. We're watching we're watching dailies one day. I remember the entire you know crew was there. The cast had left, 
we're watching dailies, and then every time, every time uh, David Gale yells, "What is this? Some sort of masochistic joke?" You know, everyone in the crew <laughs> would just re- just repeat the line with him. You know, because we were all so into it. It was so much fun. David Gale was just he was just amazing. Just a, a really nice guy and just easy to work with and just, you know, was really passionate about the work. Jeffrey Combs, same thing. Just, you know, like like I said, the, the cast was awesome. Everybody was, you know, brought their game and we had just a great time making that movie. So, um, I don't maybe this is opening a, a can of worms, but what was it like working with Brian Yuzna? How much input did he have in the final product? Um I seem to remember hearing he was one of the people that kind of wanted to push it more towards like the Ninja Turtles kid audience, but um, yeah, yeah. Can you maybe speak about I mean, that kind of yeah, that collaboration? I'll be, I'll be honest; I don't want to get too into any anything negative. You of know, course. it was so long ago. But you know, Brian and I we didn't get along. Mm-hmm. It was it was terrible. He kind of made my life hell, um, and. Uh, you know, it, it was just one of those things where literally at the end of every day shoot, you know, I had to stay an extra hour with a first AD and get yelled at and about how I'm fucking things up and how terrible <laughs> one and how things are falling behind schedule and this and this and that. And then, um, you know, and then I'll tell you one little story. Uh, basically, after we had wrapped, uh, we had wrapped uh, the film, but Scream Mad George and I had spent the, the week shooting pickups. Uh, there was we had hired an editor who was he started out kind of as an assistant editor, and he wasn't all that experienced at the time. But you know I don't know he got hired and and he had cut together my warehouse sequence, and and I get this call from Brian saying you better come back in and look at this you know it's terrible you don't know what the hell you're doing, and I was kind of like what but I'm in the middle of shooting pickups so after the pickup was done I came in I looked at the this sequence, and it was just really ineptly edited. You know, and I and I was like, this is badly edited. And Brian just got on my case about how, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and this is horrible and all this stuff. And then so basically that afternoon, this was Friday afternoon, you know, the editor was let go. And then they had he had brought in a new editor and this guy was actually really good, but he hadn't started work yet. Um, And so so I basically just told Brian, I said, well, you know, I said, I'm going to edit the sequence myself. And he says, you don't know what you're doing. This is a, a eight bed chem with, you know, sync sound. And you sh- edit 35 millimeter. And I said, I'm not asking you if I can do it. I'm telling you I'm going to do this. So you leave me a, behind an assistant editor and show me how to work this whole fucking thing. And then so he got all pissed. He says, fine, I'll see you Monday. You better have something to show me. And he leaves. And the, edit, the assistant editor was like, okay, I sat down with him, you know, and I, said, and I took my, my notepad and I said, all right, how do you string this up? How do you sync sound? How do you do this? How do I find this scene from the library of footage? How do I, and I just take, spent an hour taking all these notes. And I said, great, you're done. You can go home. Have a good weekend. And he's like, no, 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 no. I was given strict orders. I said, get out. And I closed the door and I locked him out. And I was in there the entire weekend editing this, this whole 10-minute sequence, sync sound and all. And if I had a video montage of what it was like, it would be the funniest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Dropping a thousand real film footage and watching it roll down the hallway going, holy <laughs> shit. And, you know, it was the most dumbest, craziest uh, antic you could watch in like a comedy. But I got it done. And Monday morning, 9 a.m., I hadn't gone home all weekend. Monday morning, Brian comes in with his new editor. And the first thing he says to me was, let's see it. I, I had it all set up already, sound already sunk. I had music queued up. I played the entire sequence, you know, and to Brian's credit, at the end of that, he says, okay, 
all right, maybe you should look at these other scenes too. And I ended up editing 33 minutes of the actual film myself, you know, <laughs> along, along with the editor editing the, editing the rest of the film. So, you know, he, he did see that I actually knew what I was doing. I guess, you know, as, as much as I could know as a, you know, first time filmmaker, but I made a bunch of little short films. Um, and then he, he, he let me do the rest, you know, and then he was uh, much easier on me at that point. But, but you know, it, it was a tough time. And, you know, and I don't, I don't blame him for being, you know, mean to me or all that kind of stuff because, you know, he had a lot of pressures on his side to make sure the film was delivered. And, and, and he was really good, close friends with Scream Mad George, so he wasn't going to yell at George. No, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, but everybody loved George. So, you know, what are you going to say, right? Um, so what was it, Brian, that decided to gear the movie towards children? You, 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 you also kind of made it sound like that was a very like kind of a last minute decision, too. It was. It actually was. It was we were in the in the writing stage of it and we were bring, getting pretty close to shooting. We we're already in pre-production. And then it came down. And Brian was the one that I, I remember was like saying we have to change directions and make it this way. But I don't remember or I don't know for a fact who was the one that says we have to go this direction? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe it was a, a group of people, you know, the investors maybe who had just seen the success of Ninja Turtles, or you know whatever. I don't I don't know whose decision that was, but I remember Brian coming and saying that that's what we're gonna do. Um. Did so what? So was there a there was a previous version that wasn't so kid friendly? I take it a previous script and stuff. Um. Well, in the earlier version of the script, maybe, but I don't, I don't remember. I okay. mean, it's, it's, you know, it was like we had talked about the the whole tone of it and whatever, and then some versions was written. I remember, I remember going back a lot with the writer and just saying, you know, that's this is not right, that's not right. The the guy by lore, this is not correct to that. You know, I was trying to explain stuff to him, and I think to this, and if you ever talk to the writer. I remember the last time I talked to him was I was like explaining stuff to him and he just says I, none of this makes any sense to me I don't get it at all and I'm thinking and you're the writer how come you don't get this this is not good <laughs> <laughs> but again I was this kid that was brought on you know I was kind of like the I was like the fifth wheel that was brought onto this film so I you know I kept my complaining very very minimal. Um, well, did you or Brian or George like did you ever? feel like the things that you were shooting like hey maybe this is a little too horrific for a young audience like because it that's such a reason why the movie's lopsided like mark hamill's transformation which you guys did amazingly by the way um <laughs> that was that was george that was yeah all george. but yeah. but it's it's horrific <laughs> you know it's yeah. like it, did that ever kind of come up as a like hey like the things we're shooting don't necessarily fit the target audience here yeah it it, it didn't i don't know if it ever came up on a producerial level with brian but i know when i was making the film and and we were, when we were cutting it together, I remember going to George and just saying, man, this there's a major tonal shift between your scenes and my scenes. His scenes, you know, Balkis was kind of a creepy, touchy-feely old guy, you know, and I'm making the, and I was told to make a kid's movie, but, you know, I'm 24 years old and I love kung fu and I, lo I love action and violence and, and, you know, and there's blood in this thing and I'm just like, fuck yeah, more blood, more blood. You know, Guyver <laughs> had a ton of blood. Yes, it so it was, in a way, it was sort of like my my rebellion against having to go PG on this thing and Ninja Turtles. So, 
you know, I mean, ultimately, the whole thing was just misguided. It was, we knew what the problems were. No one wanted to take responsibility because I don't think anyone really cared. We're just like, I'm just going to do what I want to do and you do what you want to do. And, 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 you know, and that was it. And so I felt kind of bad it, that, you know, that the film kind of came out the way it did. I mean, the funny thing was, you know, every film I've worked on, people always say, oh, you know, you made this film and it's a cult movie. And it seems like every film I've made becomes a cult movie, and I don't want to make cult movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned the, the Giver lore, but what was uh, this? Were there any specific inspirations for the various zoonoids in the film? Um, yeah, well, you know, like like the uh, let's see, well, not Lisker. Uh, just trying to remember all the different. Yeah, I, I remember we we thought the designs for the, the anime creature were not realistic enough. And given that time period of, you know, the monster suits kind of starting, like I had just done Monster Squad and Predator and all that kind of stuff. You know, we had sort of set a new standard for like, you know, the realism of monster suits, you know, I guess as little as it can be. Um, we need, we felt we needed to take our monsters into a different direction. So we didn't quite go as flamboyant and, and so crazy because in the anime, you know, in the manga, some of the Zornoids were so similar in design sensibility to the Giver suit itself, people yep. were getting confused as to what is a Giver, what is a Zornoid. Even with the first Giver movie, a lot of people had that problem. They didn't know, they thought the Zornoids were the Givers as well, uh, because they thought they looked too similar, and they didn't, but, you know, but they did to most people. So uh, that was something we had, to, we had to contend with. So, yeah, as far as monsters, we decided to keep it more organic, more realistic, like a like a real creature, as opposed to something that's more sci-fi. Were you able to use any specific monsters from uh, the the manga as an inspiration for anything you brought into the film? Um, I don't think so. Not for the first movie, uh, but for the second movie, I did. You know, we had we had. Uh, um, I'm zoning on the name. Who's the 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 Gregor? Uh, yeah, yeah, Rhino yeah. guy. Yeah, that yeah. was directly inspired from Gregor, and uh, you know, and I try to kind of keep the uh, sensibility of some of that, you know. But again, we still had to keep everything very organic, because I I didn't want the creatures to have such crazy lines and and the sci-fi feel that it it starts to confuse people again about it not being a Giver or being a Giver or something. <clears throat> awesome. Um, so between the two Giver films, you made Kung Fu Rascals. And I understand there was a short film and then a feature film. Can you just kind of talk about how those came to be? Yeah, well, the first one was, you know, it was back when I was I had just gotten out of high school. And I, I made that just to see what it was like to make a film. Uh, and and so that making that film got me, uh, you know, I was bitten by the bug by, by that film. And then the second Kung Fu Rascals was I had made another short film called Code 9 where I got to do sync sound and all that kind of stuff. That was essentially kind of like my film schools. Like, you know, I knew I wanted to make a, a Super 8 feature film because I knew a few people that had done them already and Super 8 was coming up, but their film wasn't technically uh, as advanced as what I wanted to do with Kung Fu Rascals. So I kind of put myself through a little short film, you know, I learned a bunch of stuff, went in and paid for a class to learn this and this and this and that. So when I came back, I said, okay, I'm going to shoot this movie. It's ambitious as hell. It's going to take me 10 months to shoot it on weekends. I'm going to build the sets myself, costumes, get all my friends to help. You know, I'm going to do this giant sequence where, you know, with these 30-foot stone gods battling the shit out of each other, you know, and, you know, all in Super 8. And, and kind of like, I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. And, and then 
So over that 10 months, I shot it. Guyver came up. I took, I took on Guyver, shot the film, finished the film. When that was done, then I came back to Kung Fu Rascals and started editing and doing the sound and all that and all the post-production on that. So that's kind of like the timeline of, of how things happened. Um, and, you know, and I learned a lot shooting Kung Fu Rascals because I remember being on set one day and, you know, Brian had come up and was asking a DP, oh, how's, how's Steve doing? You know, does he know what he's doing or whatever? And the DP was like, oh, yeah, no, he's doing good. He knows all the coverage. He knows all the stuff. And I'm thinking, coverage? What is coverage? So I asked DP, what, what's coverage? He's like, what you're doing? And he explained to me. I was like, oh, okay. So I knew how to do a lot of things. I just didn't know what they were called. Um, so it's literally like, you know, like, I'm, I'm, and I'm going like, wow, these guys are trusting some 24-year-old kid with no, hardly any experience to shoot this $3 million movies. Okay. You know? So with Kung, the feature film, Kung Fu Rascals, I got to ask, uh, you have uh, Les Claypool from the uh, band Primus, uh, who I, I'm a big Primus fan. How how did you get him involved, uh, both acting and doing the score? How did that whole thing come about? You want to hear a funny story? <laughs> He's actually not from Primus. He's not the same Les Claypool. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, so are there two Les Claypools like in the world? There's more. He's, my friend. <laughs> My friend is Les Claypool the third. His father is Les Claypool the second, and grandpa is Les Claypool the first. None of whom are in Primus. No. And <laughs> his father, Les Claypool the second, left his family when Les Claypool the third was a child and moved up to the Bay Area. And then if you look at Les Claypool from Primus, he looks identical I know. to Les Claypool the <laughs> third. He plays he plays bass. Same as Les Claypool the third, and we suspect that Les Claypool of Primus is actually Les Claypool the third's uh, a brother. <laughs> oh my. Because like this I, is like conspiracy levels. It really <laughs> like especially because like I just watched Kung Fu Rascals uh, like a few days ago, and yeah. when he showed up, I was like, there he is. There's Les Claypool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he, he real. If anyone out here doesn't other doesn't know what Les Claypool looks like, he's yeah. not kidding. That he looks exactly like the person in the movie. Like yeah. when he showed up on screen, I was just like, yeah, there's there. I saw his name in the. There he is. There's Les Claypool. There he is. Got the same nose. They both play bass. How fucking coincidental is that? <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my Les Claypool is in the band for years. Many bands. <laughs> he's a bass player. <laughs> uh, well, there's some and, more. I know, guess, I, yeah, I guess yeah. There's some more show, myth busting. When I show people pictures of, of the both Les Claypools. People literally, their eyes just go wide. Like, holy shit! Does does this Les Claypool know he has a brother? I mean, it's it's nuts. <laughs> that's wild. That yeah, that's that's a great stuff. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so so, is there any reason uh, that you know of that that Kung Fu Rascal still hasn't gotten a DVD or Blu-ray release? Um, it has a DVD, but a terrible quality one. Uh, it doesn't have a Blu-ray, but I own the film outright. I mean, it's you know, I have the original master. Uh, with technology now, we can really clean clean it up, get it looking a lot better. Um, but I just you know, I just don't know that there's any interest in it to make it you know financially feasible to spend that kind of money. You know, if it costs a amount of money to put it out and I just break even, I'm happy to do it. Mm -hmm. But I just don't. I'm just not sure that it's even worth doing that. 
Okay. Well, I, I think us and some of our, our listeners would definitely be interested. So maybe somewhere down the line, you can maybe find yeah. the right person that can maybe do like the right. Like I've, lately with a lot of like boutique kind of uh, video labels with streaming mm-hmm. and everything, like physical media is already like becoming a hardcore collector hobby. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of labels that'll just do like a limited run of something or, um, you know, uh, things like that. So that might be something that. I mean, by the time I do it, I could probably do it on my own computer. Yeah. You know, uh, and, <laughs> that's and, true. And, and that's perfectly fine. It'll probably, you know, be easy to do. And I'll, I'll burn a master and send it out and just get a bunch of copies made. Um, yeah, it's going to get to that point anyway where I can just, you know, I can just master it on, my, on a laptop. That's so, pretty awesome. Yeah. So, according to IMDb, which is always reliable, as we know, um, <laughs> yes. after the release of, of The Giver, Tsuburaya approached you to work on Ultraman, The Ultimate Hero, <clears throat> but they, I guess they thought your changes to the property were, were too radical. Could you maybe just kind of speak or elaborate more about that? Um, completely untrue. Another <laughs> urban myth. <laughs> I, I lo- I, this should just be like myth busting with Steve Wayne. This is like... you should just, you, you should if any other questions, I, I'm happy to bust it. Um, that's completely untrue. That never happened. Um, I did help on the Ultraman American show very slightly in the very beginning before they started, and and that was um, I was already working on the Giver because it was the same it was the same money uh, financiers on both projects. So he came to me and says, hey, we're doing this Ultraman show and uh, we want to know if you can, you know, show them how they should make the new Ultraman suit. So so I brought in a friend of mine and I said, look, let's make a one third scale Ultraman, like a suit that can go on a foam latex suit and just show the show the sobriety people like this is an approach to it. So we made this little one third scale figure with a rubber suit that goes on, you know. Uh, and to show them, they loved it. That's how they made the suit for Ultraman Great, right? The American version. And that was the extent of my involvement. I had nothing to do with the show in any other capacity. Uh, I was just helping a friend out, really, is all I did. Well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> um, so I would have loved to have worked on an Ultraman movie at some point. Like I love, I love Ultraman, and you know, I would love to be given a big budget to make a real, you know, Ultraman movie someday. Um, um, oh, go ahead, man. I was going to say, so you worked, I know also you worked for three months as a director on Power Rangers, on the Power Rangers movie. Mm-hmm. What what ended up happening with that? Um, what happened was they, they Fox had seen Guyver 2, and they thought I was the right guy to make this Power Rangers movie for them. So I came in, I was hired as a director, and um, it was my first time working in the studio system, and I have to say it was really difficult because... Uh, they wouldn't let me, they loved the action in Guyver 2, but they wouldn't let me shoot any action. They said, that's the second unit director. Uh, and I said, okay. and I said, but I can bring a lot to this, you know, and then, and then uh, the story, story-wise, they wouldn't let me get involved with the stories at all. They had hired three writers simultaneously to write three different scripts. And then um, there was one script that was done by these two writers. It was, uh, I think Dan Brown was one of the guys. Um, anyway, it was two writers. They had written a fantastic script, but it wasn't picked because the one that was picked was by uh, Haim Saban had picked the one that they, they that they liked, which was what ended up being the Ivan Ooze and all that. 
you know, to me, it's all kind of bullshit, you know? Mm-hmm. So so they picked that one. And I had gone to the executive. I said, why did they pick that one? I said, this one's a much better script. They say, yeah, we know. But, you know, whatever Heim wants, Heim gets. I'm like, okay, <laughs> great. So then I go to all these meetings. And I remember Heim Saban was in some of these meetings. And I'm sitting there. And, you know, Heim Saban's a billionaire, right? You don't become a billionaire because you're you're lucky or you're stupid or you're whatever. I mean, he was, he's a smart guy. And when... When we're in these meetings, Haim Saban got into a little side chat about all the history of, of the, the, uh, the Sentai series. And I knew my shit, and he knew his shit. He knew the history of Sentai and all the different seasons, and we were talking about it. And then Fox got pissed at me that, that, uh, that we knew our shit, and they didn't. Which I thought, wait a minute, but I worked for you. Wouldn't you want me to know my shit? You know, it was just really strange kind of jealousy thing that had happened. Um, and then one thing that kind of happened that didn't help the situation was Shuki Levy came to me. They were shooting VR troopers at the time. And they said, hey, uh, our shows are coming up short. Uh, can you, we have this idea for a sequence where whenever an episode is too short, they go into this other dimension and then they fight. And this is fight scenes. He says, can you kind of create this little setting and, 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 and like come in and direct it? And so I, I designed a set that they built, you know, kind of a generic set with all this dry ice and stuff. And I said, well, I can't really come in and direct this because I'm under contract with with Fox and they won't they don't won't let me do this. But I'll come in, I'll bring another guy in, which is Koichi Sakamoto, who had done Guyver 2 with me, who they didn't want to hire for Power Rangers. Um, and and I said, I'll bring Koichi in and and uh, I'll shoot the first day with him and then he can take over. And they said, okay, that's that's great. So I came in and I secretly did that. For them, and then and Koichi ended up working for Saban for like decades. He became an executive producer of Power Rangers for many, many years. I think he still is. And uh, and then he's gone on to Japan to make all these Tokusatsu movies. He did, in fact, he did, he did the Ultraman. Uh, I think the Final Fire, the big one that did all this crazy martial arts, like yeah. the big cool Ultraman movie. He directed that. So, so anyway, so we, I did that. Somehow Fox heard about it. I got really pissed. That I had done that. Fortunately, they didn't blame me for it. They said, "Oh, I know you're you're in a tough spot. What are you going to do when Heim Saban like you know tells you he, he wants you to do something? You can't just say no." So I said, "Well, I'm glad at least you guys understand. I was in a tough spot there, you know, but I helped them out anyway." And then, uh, but the bottom line for me was that they wouldn't listen to what I had to say about Power Rangers. I had all these ideas. I had done like 300 pages of storyboards and all these crazy you know sequences that were, were going to be amazing that ultimately ended up showing up in movies like like uh transformers and uh um what's that one um the Guillermo del toro one pacific uh, rim pacific rim yeah there was like there's there like the early genesis of all those kind of movies because you know Guillermo's a huge robot fan i remember when mm-hmm. he he had called me to work on on pacific rim and i couldn't because i was i was producing my own tv show at the time and I asked Guillermo, I said, hey, what are you making? He says, I'm making your movie, Wang. It's fucking giant robots beating the <laughs> shit out of giant monsters. And I'm like, fuck, I want to work on that. <laughs> but, you know, but I was doing Kamen Rider Dragon Knight at the time, so it was like a trade-off. But, um, but anyway, so, you know, it was just, it was, I did, I had done a lot of that kind of stuff. There's going to be some awesome sequences, you know, stuff that, that, People haven't seen the U.S. You know, I wanted to open the film with the Power Rangers on motorcycles because back then they hadn't even done that yet. You know, Power Rangers was in its first season, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to do this amazing opening with the motorcycles. 
all this crazy shit. And basically, I was just shot down time after time after time. I was not invited to script meetings. And after a while, I decided, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I, I, I know more about this than anybody involved in this film. And they're just basically shutting me out. So I finally quit. Yeah. Uh, I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> that sucks. But, I mean, I totally understand it. <laughs> Um, real quick, uh, uh, you uh, you did work on the Tales from the Dark Side movie, which had the the gargoyle story. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with the Japanese legend of the Snow Woman, which uh, was it was in the movie Quida most famously, but um, it definitely seems to have taken inspiration from that story. Oh yeah, that's a that's an old tale. Yeah. Uh, I I I've not seen the movie, the original movie that the Japanese movie, but that story is really old. I, yeah. I've known that about that story for a long time. So how did Giver, you know, Dark Hero, how how did how did that get off the ground? Was that more you campaigning to get it done? Did they offer it to you? Was there interest in a sequel right away? Um no, they didn't offer it to me. They offered it to George. I, I had right, yeah, George. you did say yeah. that. Right, and so I just, I just went and campaigned for it. I, I basically met with them and said, hey, let me do it, you know? And they said, okay. And that was it. It was really that simple. Would you be able to talk about the change in tones, uh, you know, between the two films? You kind of elaborated on it. It sounds like you were just really able to have more creative control, but um, Guyver 2 seems, you know, a bit more... I don't know. I, of the two movies, I, I actually love this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, but what what would you say accounts for the, the the radical difference in the two the two films' tone? And also, was there a specific reason why some of the actors were were recast? I mean, I assume maybe it was just a, a, a casting thing. Somebody wasn't available, but wanted to make sure I asked that. No, it's um, well, the, the the tone shift was that I was trying to stay more true to the the manga. I, you know, I I couldn't make the manga because that was like a hundred million dollar movie. So. Uh, the the first reason I wanted to do was I wanted to make an apology film for the first for the fans. <laughs> really, that that was really my intention. It was like you know what I feel like shit. I I need to apologize because, you know, for for making a film that was just so not close to the source material, and me being a big fan of the source material too was re- it was really heartbreaking to to be responsible. You know what I mean for that, and so so when I did part two, I went to Japan and I met with Yoshiki Takaya and I said, hey, you know. I know the first film was not the Guyber, you know, and, and I said, I want, I apologize, you know, I'm trying to, I was fighting the system, but now they give me complete autonomy. And I say, and I want to get your input on this and, you know, and I want I want your blessing with what I'm trying to do. I said, I can't, I can't make the movie based on the manga because it's just too, the world's too big and I have less than a million dollars to make this movie. So I, I pitched him my idea about the ex- excavation. I said, there's all these elements that I love about the Giver and I want to put them in. But I said, can we agree that the movie universe and the Giver universe are two different universes, but has the same spirit? And he says, yes, I love that idea. I said, great. You know, he originally didn't want me to do the Giver Zonoid. Because that was an idea that I, I had come up with, but apparently he had also come up with it on his own that we had never, we just didn't know. I guess perhaps it was just a logical progression for sure. how the story was going. And I said, you know, I said, and I explained to him, he said, well, I, I wanted to explore that angle in the comic. And I said, well, I think you should still, I mean, you know, it's your, it's your creation. I don't want to tell you what to do. You can do your own version of it. But I said, you know, I have an idea how I want to do this version of it. And. You know, and I said, my idea is simply that this could be the last Guyver film ever made. 
I look at every film I make as this could be the last film I ever make. So I want to go out with a bang. I want to make a big, a bigger, the, the biggest impression I can make and have something where it gives us a, a fighting chance to get a third one made if it was, if this, you know, this one's received well enough. So don't hold any punches, just go, 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 you know? And so he respected that. He says, well, go ahead and, and do it, you know? And so, so I did. And the only thing he had a, he had a big issue with was the ending. Where the original ending was when, um, when Sean goes into the spaceship and he finally connects with the ship and the ship shows him the history of, of how the Zornas were created and how the Giver was a mistake, you know, or, or was, or was actually created by the aliens. In the, in the comic, you know, the Giver was a mistake. But in the, um, he's nothing more than just a weapon. In my original story was that, you know, I, I was so caught up with, you know, Sean trying so hard to do all the stuff that, you know, he, he, he wanted to find his destiny so badly that I felt we got to at least give him that so that he finally discovered his destiny is that he's become the Giver because he has to protect mankind. Takaya didn't like that idea. He says, really, the Giver is nothing but a weapon. And what you do with it is what makes you who you are. And I saw his point. I didn't quite agree with it at the time because I thought, ah, I just need something a little bit more meaningful. But then I told him, um, I'll see what I can do. You know, I'll see, I'll see what I can do. So he didn't know that as I went back to rework the script, I, I kind of like really kind of thought about what he said. And I said, you know what? That would be interesting if literally Sean did all this shit thinking he was doing the right thing. And he comes out and realized that, you know what? You're just by chance. You you could have it could have been anybody else. This is nothing, literally nothing but you discovering an AK-47. But then what what do you do with it is what makes you who you are. And I thought that was much more meaningful than having a destiny or having whatever. It really, you know, and so I rewrote the ending to to reflect that. And I remember when Takaya saw it, he loved it. He was just like, he was he had already said in the press in Japan, you know, oh, I, I kind of realized, you know, the Filmmakers should do what he wants, even if it's different from the comic, not knowing that I had figured out what he said really was a better approach. And that's kind of what I did. So he was pleasantly surprised that I stuck with the original, you know, idea of the guy and what it was. I think it's cool you went to ask for his blessing. I mean, especially because obviously you have a, a, a very big passion for it. Mm-hmm. Um, another question I, I did want to ask again is, did you have a reason for uh, recasting certain characters and I also like the girlfriend shows up at the very beginning of the yes. second film and then she's basically like kind of out of the picture at that point was there any specific reason you wanted to, to do that as well yeah the, the the whole recast was because uh the first movie was uh SAG signatory so Screen Actors Guild it was union second movie was so low budget we had to do a non-union ah, so okay. so I couldn't hire the original cast let alone afford the original cast so some of them were very expensive so I had to hire all non-SAG actors. And of course, a bunch of them were SAG. And they just kind of worked non-SAG, you know, and they changed their names or whatever, including the girl that played Mitski. She, um, you know, she was a SAG actress who changed her name so that you didn't know it was her and, and whatever, you know, just, just to get the work. Uh, but I had I felt like that the storyline with, with uh, Mitski was was a little played out. Like maybe well, part of me was like, I just wanted to erase everything I could from the first movie and start fresh again. You know, and I felt like if he had brought, if Sean had brought her, she would have been more luggage than something that would contribute to the story. You know, so so that's how kind of, that's why I kind of wrote her out. I just wanted to show that their relationship was just so, 
it was so uh, belabored already. It was you know it was so trying because because of Sean's obsession and Sean could could not stay away from what he thought was the right thing to do, and it just kind of slowly brought them more and more apart. And the reason I took that direction was because I, you know, I got the blessing that I could make this movie however I, I wanted to make it. And yeah, that, makes that sense. was a yeah, and that, that that was a good way for you to take something that maybe you weren't so into in the first one and give it a natural conclusion. Because if you did keep her around, it would it would almost be a completely different story than the mm-hmm. one that you have in the movie. Yeah, I just couldn't see why she would go along with him. You know, after all this time, because it had been a year later and he's having nightmares and he's not loving, you know, being a guyver. You know, I, I took a much more more darker approach to it, you know, of like, what's this kid going to do with this crazy thing inside of him? Kronos is gone. He doesn't know Kronos is around anymore. So what's he going to do with this thing that's constantly calling him? Like He doesn't know what it wants, you know, and then what he found out what it wants is he had seen this newscast and seen the the, the spaceships. And he felt like this is the answer I'm looking for. Whatever it is, you know, he didn't want to be the Giver anymore. So he was trying to find any way he can to get out of it. And that's why he, you know, it led him, you know, to where he to where he was going. It was just it was just this thing that was just bugging him constantly, and he couldn't stop doing what he was doing. Um <clears throat> so uh did you ever want to get a third movie done and you know is there maybe a reason it didn't continue after that yeah i, I tried many times um uh, to get a third movie made i had a storyline that was going to happen before the year 2000 you know uh that was going to take place and it was interesting with the uh the character of guyver 3 was going to be in it um you know it's going it was going to expand a little bit more of the guyver 2 universe and uh, unfortunately, you know, I came close to getting it made at one point, but I was told that the funding would come from Canada. I had to shoot it in Canada. I had hired an all-Canadian crew. Uh, the budget was limited, and if I wanted to write, I couldn't direct. If I wanted to direct, I couldn't produce. If I wanted to produce, I couldn't do creature effects. And I just thought, this is the wrong movie. I have to do all of this, or else this movie will never get made. And so I, I had to walk away from it. I was like, there's no way this film could be made like that. Um, and then, uh, and then just recently, actually, as a couple years ago, I went and I met with Yoshiki Takaya again and, uh, got his blessing and, uh, from Kadokawa to, to make another Gaiver movie. And then we got, we got into some interesting situations with rights and clearances and whatever. And that's all, apparently that's all been cleared on their side. Uh, but now I can't get any movement whatsoever. I don't know what's going on. I, I got a big, big Japanese company, uh, behind me that's interested in making this, even as a, a TV series. And they've met with Kadokawa on my behalf, saying, hey, we want to work with Steve. We want to do this. Just want you to know we're really interested in this. Let's move forward. You know, uh, you know, give them the okay to start on this thing. And nothing. And I'm talking that this, the company that I'm talking about is like as big as Disney in Japan. Like they're huge. And we just can't get any movement whatsoever. And so I finally just gave up on it. I was like, I don't know what to do. If they call me one day and say, okay, we're ready, great. If they don't call me, I won't be surprised. I, I just don't know what to do. I even talked to Takaya, and I just said, what's going on? You know, he's like, well, they control the rights. I don't know what else to say or do. And so I'm like, okay, right, this, this is it. You know, I wanted to actually make this into a, like a Netflix series, like an eight, ten episode series. Yeah. I had a whole new approach. I, I was going to reboot the whole series. And I had this whole new approach to make it 
Um, I got some ideas for some action sequences that the Giver fans would just lose their shit. It's something they've never seen before. It's not even in the comics. Um, it's it's crazy. It's fucking exciting. And I just like, okay, put it in the back burner. You know, I don't know. There's nothing more I can do. Well, I'd watch the hell out of that. Yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> I, was gonna say. I, I would make the hell out of that. I mean, I, I wanted, I've wanted to make this for 20 years. And, you know, and I just, it just... I don't know. I don't know what else to do anymore. It's just like you know, if you know some guy, a billionaire who's you know who's got ten, twenty million, to just like you know to, for a tax write off, let me know. <laughs> just say, hey, why don't you be a producer on a Guyver series or something? And we'll, and we'll, I'll make it happen. I know how to make it happen. I just need the money. Well, it um, sounds awesome. I'm sure every yeah. one of our uh, listeners would check it out. I, I love the Guyver in general and everything that uh, Guyver Two is. I adore. So I'm sure that this project would be awesome as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a huge Guyver fan still to this day. I think Guyver is he's it's an awesome property, awesome creation, you know. And and you know, I don't understand why no one else has made a Guyver movie um, or had approached them to make a Guyver movie. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna pivot back to. Uh, <laughs> I guess we can pivot back to things not being faithful to their source material. You do have a credit uh, uh, as I guess a painter uh, is. Um, uh, on the 1998 Godzilla film, um, mm-hmm. is that an experience you could talk a little bit more about? Um, yeah, I was hired by Patrick Tatopoulos, who is a really good friend still. I was I was his art director at his studio for quite a few years uh, after Godzilla, and I was brought on as a painter, and I painted uh, basically all the practical baby Godzilla heads that on the the suits. Oh. I painted all those myself. I spent three months, fifty hours a week painting that. Um, that was my experience, you know, a lot of, a lot of good friends worked on that show. I had a great time. Um, that was about it. Okay. Um, were you aware at the time of the radical changes being made to Godzilla? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was there at the shop. Um, yeah, I was, I was surprised, you know, I was kind of like, wow, this is like really different. Um, but I didn't know what the, the, what the story was, why it was so different. You know, the first time I met Patrick, it was his design. Uh, he and Roland Emmerich went to Japan to pitch them with the maquette and say, this is what we want to do. So I think I think they were just like trying to reinvent Godzilla, really. You know, they, they, the intention was sincere and they did care about Godzilla a lot. You know, that's one thing, at least I, I would say to defend Patrick, is that, you know, they, they loved Godzilla and they wanted to try to update him, make him into something kind of, you know, fresh and different. You know, maybe it was misguided. I don't know, you know, but um, whatever it was, the, you know, it, it, the public didn't accept it, unfortunately. Um, well, we did get the, uh, the cartoon, which was pretty awesome. So <laughs> I, mm-hmm. did, I did like that. Yeah. Uh, so um, from what I understand, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Common Rider, Dragon Knight. From what I, it sounds like, that was kind of a troubled production could you maybe kind of talk about what what was going on there um it, yeah i mean I'll, I'll give you kind of a basic uh rundown on that you know i was i was approached by a friend of mine who had gotten the rights from japan to produce the show and he, you know of course we had done a couple of projects together and he just so he says hey you know this is totally you why don't you executive produce this you know just make the show and he had gotten an investor to bring in some money um, it was low budget. You know, we had, I think, less than half the budget of Power Rangers per episode to make Kamen Rider. So we had to shoot it very fast. And, and um, 
And uh, as far as production is concerned, uh, we had not huge trouble. We were shut down by the union at one point and had to unionize and, you know, typical Hollywood shit that we had to just solve and get done. And, you know, um, so that wasn't really the big problem. Uh, the big problem was that we had um, the show Cartoon Network was really interested in the show and they wanted to pick the show up. And so my brother and I, who were producing it together, we had talked to their guy and uh, got their take on what we should do. And they had a lot of great ideas that we agree with and thought was great. And, you know, and, and they, know, they know what they're talking about. They're, that's what they market to. But unfortunately, on Japan's side, they didn't agree with it. And so we were told that they, you know, not to go, not to listen to them and do whatever, whatever. And so what happened was uh, we made the show. Cartoon Network ended up not picking it up because, you know, they didn't agree with what we wanted to do. Um, and then, uh, you know, what happened was the the toys was was already in production, and they had to stop the toy production until they found another network, which ended up becoming CW for Kids. But by the time they figured that out and the toys went back in production, they didn't come out for seven months after the film, uh, the, the show had already premiered. And that was the big problem because now you have seven months of kids watching the show and they can't buy toys anywhere. So that caused a huge problem for Bandai and, you know, uh, the whole marketing thing was completely just screwed up. And so because of all that, you know, um, and then the I was told the ratings wasn't great. Like I would check the ratings every every week. And we were about like one, 1. 1.2 million viewers a week, which was not great, apparently. You know, like a, a great viewership would be like 3 million plus or something. But we did better than a lot of the other cartoons that were on. Um, so I guess that wasn't enough for them to justify another, you know, another series. So at the end of it all, you know, it just was, it just didn't happen. Um, but I was told at least that a lot of people did enjoy the show, you know, like, um, just randomly friends would tell me, oh, you know, my, I was working on set in, in, in Mississippi and this guy was telling me about the show and he watches with his kids and he loves it and, and they watch it together and it was Kamen Rider, you know, so it's kind of nice to hear that kind of stuff because we, we try to at least make a show, even though it was for kids, like 10 year old kids, we try to make a show that was that 18 to 20 year olds could watch secretly and enjoy. <laughs> so I have uh, two follow-ups to that. One is, do you know why the last episode was basically a clip show and that some of the final shows that were shot actually were never aired. And then also, as I understand it, there was a, uh, an interview where you had mentioned there was going to be a potential follow-up based on Common Rider Kabuto. Can you tell us anything about those ideas? Uh, yeah, the first uh, the first thing about the the uh, the unaired episode was simply, for some reason, CW at a certain point, uh, you know, because they they treated the show as two seasons. So the first thirteen episode they showed it up to thirteen, and then instead of showing the the fourteen and on, which was already like ready to go, they went back and showed the first thirteen again. And then when they end up showing the second uh, second season, which was fourteen to the end. Uh, uninterrupted, they ran out of they ran out of time, and so because they weren't going to do a second uh, uh, another follow up season of the show, the last two episodes never got aired because there was no there was no slot for them, so they aired it online on their website instead. So it was just you know it was that that was the reason it was it was it was a stupid reason, but you know from their from their I guess TV programming perspective, you know it, it makes perfect sense. You know why invest in showing something that you can't follow up with so so that was what happened with that the the um 
the clip show of the episode 40, that was a budgetary reason because at one point when we literally had finished episode 31, 32, we we're actually shooting those episodes and that was, that was when, you know, Kit got, got vented and everything was basically took a whole turn. The no men took over. The show just took a completely different direction at that point. Right as we were shooting, shooting that, uh, one of the money uh, exec producer came up to me and says, oh, my God, we're, we, we don't have any money left. You know, we're going to run out of money. The money's not going to come. So you have to finish the show in the next, you know, three episodes. And we're like, <laughs> what? We just ended this whole block to start the last 10 episodes. It's this whole new thing. And now we have to finish it. So we literally were scrambling, like, how do we finish the show in three episodes? And, and we just introduced all the stuff that we're shooting right now. And it was it got insane. And then finally they came back and go, okay, we got the money. It's good. We can continue. But as we started to budget things out and schedule things out, we realized that we're going to run out of money at a certain point. So the last episode had to be a clip show. So And plus, 39 was such a huge, heavy episode. We had over 100 visual effect shots just in that episode alone. It was, you know, it was a thing where it was going to spill over, but we couldn't spill over because already 38 and 39 was already like a double episode. So we, we decided, well, you know what? Because of the budget, this is all we can do. We can only spend a d- one day to shoot episode 40. So it has to be a clip show. And and I have to shoot just the finale, just finish everything up in one day. And then we just cut this thing. It was money, lack of money, as you say. you know. Uh, and these are, these are the problems that I deal with as a producer on the show is that you know, you're giving a buck ninety five and it's saying, Okay, you gotta make a show that compete with a show that is made for ten dollars. And you know, like which is Power Rangers, right? Mm-hmm. Power Rangers had over a half million dollars per episode and they were working in New Zealand so that they had even more money, New Zealand dollars. Mm-hmm. Our budget was two hundred and fifty thousand per episode. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean we you know they were shooting episodes like you know they're shooting five six days in an episode we're shooting three days an episode i mean it's it's nuts that makes a lot of sense uh so let's two questions so let's go back to you had an idea for maybe a a sequel uh, based on common rider kabuto could you talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit yeah at one point when things looked like they were kind of you know going well we had talked about okay if common rider dragon knight continues what do we do do we do a dragon knight another Dragon Knight show and do shoot all completely new episodes, new footage, new monsters uh, made just for the show, or do we do another adaptation? And I think the whole idea of the adaptation uh, won out because it was just going to be a little bit more affordable to do what we did on Kamen Rider Dragon Knight, which was we took all the footage as much as we could use uh, and then try to adapt the story into using that footage into our story and then shoot the rest ourselves. And incidentally, we shot more suit footage in Kamen Rider Dragon Knight than we actually used of the Japanese footage. There was quite a bit of stuff that we, we had shot for the show. Um, but so we ended up going, you know, decided, okay, if we're going to do that, we can, I think Kabuto makes the most sense. You know, it had a, a lot of Kamen Riders, just like Dragon Knight did for toys purposes. Everything we did wrong with the marketing, with all those kind of stuff, now we can kind of write things and, and, do it correctly and market it correctly, but then it just didn't happen. Is there a reason why um, Common Rider never got a home video release that you're aware of? Yeah, it, it the rights. Uh, well, there was some stuff that happened that I can't really talk about. Um, that was not good. A little bit crooked. Uh, 
and um, I, you know, which I, I don't want to talk about. But I would just say that because of that situation, the rights ended up reverting back to Japan, ah, and the com- yeah. and the companies that had the opportunity to sell it to DVD and whatever market uh, dissipated very quickly and was gone. And so that just and that kind of led that kind of, it kind of snowballed and every all the other companies associated with it just kind of like disappeared and then at the point it was all then at some point it was like wow everybody's gone like you know the house is empty there's like who's gonna put it on on Blu-ray or DVD like nobody so but Toei has the rights to it anybody who has a just a video distribution company can go to Toei and license it and release it here in the U S I just want to put that out there. So if somebody's a fan of Kamen Rider Dragon Knight, they want to see this come out, they have a video distribution business, talk to Toei. They are ready to license it to anyone who wants to put it out in the U.S. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do work on those, uh, like things like Kamen Rider, Power Rangers, um, do you often reference the older, you know, Japanese Sentai and Rider shows? Um. Not really, you know. I mean, I grew up watching all the stuff, so I'm I'm really familiar with the style of of those shows. You know, I know I know a lot of the, the actors are in their shows, like like this uh, spaceship Gabon, like Shadivan's a friend of mine. You know, I've been on set for all those shows. I've been on set for Kamen Rider Black. You know, I met all the actors there. You know, I've 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 I know a lot of the people in the Japanese industry. Um, so, so I you know I I I I. I I'm not sure that I reference them more so than just you know it, it's it's a personal love of mine so I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing going in mm-hmm. like I know I know what excites me about these shows and I try to put my spin on it you know to to add more of a Western take to that because you know it's it's always a tricky slope to navigate when you have you know somebody yelling Henshin you know and like you know I know some people have problems with them yelling Common Writer but. When you when you directly translate and the guy just says transform, it also <laughs> just as cheesy, right? So you know yeah. it, it's it's really difficult to navigate through that landscape, and so I th- I felt Common Rider was the, the least offensive, and to my surprise, when they released it in Japan, they also say Common Rider when they transform. They don't say Henshin. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and then what I heard was I, I heard from my friend Koichi, who was you know in Japan, still in Japan. He's 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 crazy. He's shooting so many things. Every year, so he's in really well with the Toei producers, especially with the main guy, Mr. Suzuki, who we had met. Uh, he had come visit the set a couple of times. Uh, he told me that Suzuki really liked Dragon Knight. He was really impressed with it, and he said that he was really surprised how good the show was when they were dubbing it all in Japanese. That a lot of the voice actors they hired were from all those Kamen Rider shows, and they had come in and done all these parts, and even they had publicly spoke about how. They really love the U.S. version and how much respect we paid to the show and how the subject matter and how we treated you know everything was was with a lot of respect and care. So that was really that meant a lot to me because you know I made that show from a place of love. Like I met I met uh, Shotaro Ishinomori when I was 21 years old in Japan. He was so kind to me when I met him and and you know and I was a huge fan of Kamen Rider and Kikaida and you know Cyborg 009 and and. So to me, one of my heroes, and to have him be so kind to me, you know, I, I, when I made the show, I, I, I made the show wanting to honor his spirit, his memory of what he wanted to do with the Common Rider. So instead of doing like the the he say uh, uh, era approach, where things, you know, like how they make uh, Ryuki was very much like Highlander. It was like 
completely different format than what the original Common Rider was, uh, which was more good versus evil. I wanted to go back to the Showa uh, um, uh, era and do a show that was more true to the original spirit of Common Rider. So that's kind of what I did with Dragon Knight. I kind of did a kind of amalgamation of that, but still, it was more about good and evil. And maybe that might sound a little cliche, but I think we did we did pretty well with it. You know, I thought Zabiax was a really interesting villain. You know, we we treated him with a lot of respect. We made him really smart and and threatening. You know, we always want to make our villains smarter than our heroes, so that there's always this sense of uncertainty and this sense of threat that they feel because they don't know what's going to happen. That sounds like you put a lot of uh, love and care into that. And, I, and I'm sure that, I mean, you don't always see that from American productions when it's based on a property from overseas. So that, that's awesome to hear. Mm-hmm. We're kind of winding down here. We have a handful of questions. Are we good on time on your end? Just want to be respectful of your time because we really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, I'm fine. Okay. Um, so did you get to work with George Romero at all in the Resident Evil 2 commercials? I did. I did. Uh, that was a screaming mad George gig, and George had called me and said, "Hey, I'm doing this commercial. George Romero's directing. Can you come in and like, you know, do a couple of zombie makeups?" So I came in, I did a couple of zombie makeups, went on set. I met with George, you know, uh, and he put my zombie in the front, you know, of the shot. It was kind of cool, and uh, yeah, he was a great guy. Just really, really low key, like unassuming, really kind of calm, nice guy. So cool. Um, so I'm going to bring up kind of, I guess, a deep cut here. There's at least stateside, a a very obscure film that, uh, you worked on, um, from 2003 and there's like barely any English language material on it. The only thing I could even find is like your name on the DVD packaging. And that's a movie called Dragon Blue. Um, would you be able to, (laughs) would you be able to talk about that film at, at all a bit? Yeah, yeah, that was directed by a good friend of mine, uh, Takuya Wada, <clears throat> and um, he was, uh, the way I met him was, he was working at this uh, Japanese university that I would go twice a year to lecture at, and he was one of the animation instructors there, and so we struck up a friendship, you know, at one point he was even my agent for Japan for a little bit, and then, uh, so he got into making movies on his own, and, and he, uh, he really loves wrestling, so he had uh, gotten uh, Keiji Muto, who became, who's also the great Muta, uh, in you know in his films and stuff like that. Who who I've met, and he's a great guy too. You know, a lot just he's a fun guy. And so Tak had asked me. He said, "Hey, you know, I need a monster. Would you mind designing a monster?" And I said, "You know, I already designed a monster that I think is pretty cool. Why don't we just use this?" So I sent him the design, and then uh, this one kid that was actually a student of the school that I was teaching at, who's now a very well-established makeup effects artist in Japan, um, named Tomo. And so Tomo built the suit in two weeks. And I was like, what the fuck? How do you do this in two weeks? Like he, but he did it. And so they used this creature. You know, So my, my involvement only was that I had designed this creature and then they had done everything in Japan. It was a very low-budget film. Um, so that's, yeah, Dragon Blue. Here's a, I have a couple uh, rapid-fire questions as we kind of close things out. So... Um... Who have been your favorite actors and directors to work with? Um, oh, wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one because um, I, don't, I haven't really got to work with a lot of directors super closely. They're generally very short, you know, little stints and whatnot. Um, but, um, Jesus, actors... 
Well, you know, I, I met Robert Downey Jr. once on Iron Man 2. And, uh, and you know, and to show you how Hollywood works, right? I was working on, on a costume for a scene that was that was cut out of Iron Man 2. They ended up going a different direction. But we made the costume. In the course of making the costume, we we went on set. You know, we're supposed to go to this trailer and, and test fit him and make a bunch of measurements and whatnot. And Robert Downey Jr. was super hot at that time. So we were told by his assistants, all right, only two people can go in at a time. And, you know, you, you can't do this and you can't say that. And, you can't, and, it was, and I was sitting there going, what kind of bullshit is this, man? We're professionals. We're here to do a job. And so what happened was as soon as Robert Downey showed up, he saw us and there's like a group of eight of us. He's like, hey, guys, come on in. And so we all piled into his trailer and we're doing all these fittings. And he was just the nicest guy, the coolest. He even asked me for permission if he could keep his necklace on because it was a special thing. And I'm like, why are you asking me? This is your fucking show, you know? <laughs> so super humble, super nice. And, you know, and, and you know, these kind of these kind of interactions always uh, I'll always remember them because it just really shows me that, you know, people who are of their caliber, of their success, who are still very humble and down to earth are always the guys that will end up always talk about because, you know, they're, they're just awesome people. Um, Work with a lot, I worked with a lot of actors who were really awesome. Worked with a few that weren't quite so awesome, who I'm not going to name. Uh, directors as well. Um, most directors I've worked with have just been, they're so busy working on their, their jobs, you know, uh, that, that our interactions are just very professional. So, you know, no real any bad uh, memories of anything bad that happened. Well, I, I was going to ask, especially when you work on a huge movie like Godzilla 98 or Reign of Fire or Iron Man 2, like, how much face time do you even get with, you know, the director or, you know, or any of those people? Like, it, they're probably usually kind of hands-off because you're part of, like, a, another department, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, Roland Emmerich, my interaction with him was very, very short because I was just in the creature department and he had... Patrick had brought him by to introduce Roland to me. And so yeah, I met him. He seemed really nice. Um, and uh, the director of Rain of Fire was uh, Rob. What's his last name? He, I think he had come from the X-Files or something. Um, you know, I, I interacted with him very little, but I remember one story that was pretty cool where he came in. He knew what he wanted to do with the movie. One of the Disney execs came in and was commenting on the dragons that we were designing. And he says... You know, this is a Disney movie. Don't you think that the dragon should have like bigger, cuter eyes? And before he, <laughs> before he even finished, this director cut him off. He says, "That's not the movie we're making." And that was it. <laughs> That's <laughs> it was awesome. Rob, Rob yeah. Bowman, by the way. Rob Bowman, yes, yeah. yeah. He he was very charismatic. He just came in and just told it like it was, and that was great. Um, so yeah, so every once in a while, uh, I've had some interactions with costume designers. That were pretty. I just I worked with this. One, I won't say the movie because I don't want to don't want to embarrass anyone. But I worked with this on this one movie, and this costume designer had was hired after the original de designer was fired, so she had a lot of clout, a lot of say. Um, and uh, I remember one time she was on the phone, and everyone could hear screaming at the director, saying, "You don't fucking tell me how to make my costumes. You should spend your time and work on that fucking awful script that, of yours and make it better." <laughs> and we're sitting there like like going holy shit man this woman's got some balls so you get you you hear these kind of things and you get to witness 
some of these a little bit, you know, more crazy uh, extreme things that would happen. Um, so, yeah. So uh, another just fanboy question. If you could do creature designs or effects for any existing monster franchise or iconic uh, monster or character, what would that be? Any kind of dream thing that you would just want yeah, to do? That's the easy one. First and foremost, I would love to do the creature from the Black Lagoon. But didn't you kind of do that in with Monster Squad? No, no. Stan, Stan designed that. Okay, I, okay. I had, it, the... I had contributed my take on it, and I had designed the paint job and whatnot. You know, and brought that to the table. Okay. But again, that's that IMDb. Uh, IMDb being unreliable, it has you as Monster Squad, and then like, spe- it specifies like Gilman head or something. Well, yeah, that, I, that was true. I mean, Matt Rose and I, we, that was our creature. We headed it up. We did all the work on it. You know, uh, Stan had done the initial design, and we took that to his design to the next level, and then I contributed my paint style, which yeah. Stan loved, you know. So, so you're, like yeah, a we, step, you, you're like a step in the door on creature. You want to just get the whole thing done. Yeah, because the Monster Squad Gilman was, is not how I would do a creature from the Black Lagoon. That was more, that was more like contributing to stan's vision of the creature you know what i mean yeah Yeah, so i have a completely different take on the creature and not only would i want to make the creature i would also love to direct the movie um you know do a a whole new take on the on this on the creature movie and the story and and you know there's i think there's a, a good story to be told that could be similar but very different in a lot of respects um an amazing creature could be made uh in the spirit of the original creature without veering too far off. Um, you know, I would love the opportunity to, to do that, but I would only do it if I had total autonomy on it, mm-hmm. you know, and just say, this is what I want to do. Like the way Guillermo del Toro, like I, I loved shape of water, yeah, it's oh, a yeah. Great movie. you know, and, and I thought, you know, cause Guillermo, he's a huge creature fan. I mean, I think uh, I remember going to uh, uh, the first public screening of the creature from black lagoon in 3d. Uh, at the director's guild like this was like maybe six years ago or something you know and you can see it without those those glasses you see it like in a in the stereoscopic vision like correctly without the colors and i went there to go see it and guillermo was there you know so he's a huge huge creature fan and so this was his his take on it which i I was really happy to see it because it was one of those films that i wish i had worked on and i did kind of you know he had called me at one point uh, to come in and kind of help with something, you know, help something along. And then he gave me a special thanks credit in the end, which I didn't expect. Um, but he had called me originally to work on that film. And I didn't know, I didn't know it was that film and <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't work on it. He, you know, I was so busy. He wanted me to, to design it at his, his place. And I said, I can't, I'm running two businesses. And you know, I said, I can do it for my place, but I can't, you know, but he had, he was so passionate. He wanted to do it a certain way. And had he told me it was shape of water, I may had, made it work but i didn't know that it was, that was the film and I, I just tell him i couldn't do it um but but i love what he did with the film you know i had a very similar uh concept years ago story is completely different but a, a similar concept about a fish man and a woman and all this stuff and you know that i wanted to make and then i saw that movie it was like oh well okay maybe i can still make it it's still very different you know but it has some similar some, some a few similar things about it but um Ultimately, you know, it's rare that I watch a movie that I want to work on afterwards. Like, like, wow, I wish I could have been a part of this. Like, Shape of Water was definitely one of them. I could have been. I wish I could have been a bigger part of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, 
movie like Braveheart, I wish I had made that movie. Like I, that's one of my favorite movies of all time, you know. And and Mel Gibson fucking he knocked it out of the park with that one. So that's one of the movies I wish I had I had directed, you know. But of course, I'm glad I didn't because Mel Gibson did an awesome job and whatnot. And so. <laughs> So, uh, what are your thoughts on you know CG being such a common like go-to tool for for effects and like has it impacted you as a practical practical effects guy at all? Um, with, oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It actually impacted what I do so much that I actually retired from it from makeup effects for quite a while because I I kind of. I kind of felt like it doesn't matter what I do; it's going to get replaced with CG, and and it usually does. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought, you know, like I I am pretty good at seeing the big picture, and I and I have a big big picture in my head. I'm just waiting to see if it actually happens, and so because uh, I believe it will happen. And uh, to give you an idea how I feel, I'm back in doing films again. I've been I worked on the um, the new Bill and Ted Face to Music. <clears throat> that just wrapped a few months ago. Awesome. <clears throat> yeah, my studio. We uh, <clears throat> excuse me. We had designed and uh, and built this this robotic character. He's like a, one of the main characters in the film. So we did that for the film uh, that wrapped, and then we're working on a Netflix movie right now with uh, uh, a couple of pretty big stars. So we're doing that now. So I'm back in. I'm back in doing doing effects again. In fact, gives you an indication of how I feel about CG and practical effects. Yes, for sure. <clears throat> so I have uh, two. The two final questions I have for you. Um, one: Do you have any advice for someone who wants to get into specifically the, the the movie industry, but specifically wants to work in special effects? Any places they could start? Resources they could tap into? And then also, oh. could you just tell us about? You kind of mentioned this, but any work that you want to talk about? Anything we can plug for you? Sure. Uh, so the first thing is. You know, I get hit with this question all the time, and I get a lot of emails about, you know, oh, I'm, I want to, I want to work for you. I want you to teach me and mentor me and all this stuff. And then I look at their profile, look at what they've done, and they've done nothing. And these are the these are the emails that I have to ignore because I, I get so many of these. And you know, the only reference that I have is myself, a reference of people that I work with who come from very similar background, and that is the background is. Are you passionate about this? Do you really want to do this? Because I believe anybody who is passionate about what they want to do with anything will figure out a way to do it. You know what I mean? I, I love, I wanted to do this. I taught myself how to do it. And then it turned out when I got into Hollywood, almost every single person I worked with in the effect shop had the same exact story I did. They wanted to do it so bad, they taught themselves how to do it. My story was not unique at all, not even close. You know, everyone did this. But then as the, the, with the advent of makeup schools coming through, with the advent of face-off, you know, and kind of glorifying and, and popularizing makeups, you know, and all that kind of stuff, it, of course it's going to attract the attention of a lot of people who are, like, dabbling with this, going, wow, that's interesting. I wonder if I would like doing that. Well, wondering if I would like doing that really isn't enough. You're not, gonna, you're not going to make a career out of that. You either have to then take the next step and try it, and see if you're passionate about it. And if you are, then you have to be obsessive. You know, Dick Smith, or, or the, 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 he's the, um, the godfather of makeup, once said, makeup effects is not just an obsession. It's a lust. You, you either lust for it or you're not, you're not right for this business. And it's true. People who have been in this business 
20, 30 years plus who are still in the business have a lust for this. Like every day I go home, I think about what I'm going to do, what I would like to do tomorrow, you know, or this project I'm going to do on the side. I'm still thinking about this stuff around the clock. I have a passion for it. So you got to have the passion. Uh, and then on top of that, if you don't know how to do something, you know, you either try to go to makeup school or you figure out how to do it. You have a thing called YouTube and Internet. My God, everything you could possibly want to know is at the touch of a keyboard. You know, I learned how to make bronze monuments by watching YouTube. That's how ridiculous it's gotten now. I, people ask me, can you build this? And I'll go, sure I can. I'll go on YouTube. And, and now I'm a professional. And I'll figure it out. And I'll, and I'll do it. And so, you know, all, everything, all the resources is at their fingertip. So you don't need somebody to mentor you. You don't need somebody to teach you how to do it. You need to discover in yourself first, is this what you want to do? And do you have a passion for it? And if, the, if, and if the answer is yes, prove it to yourself. And if you can prove to yourself, then prove it to people who are potential employers by having a, a huge portfolio of work, show that you're committed to becoming a better artist, a better technician, a better, every, you know, everything. That's my advice. If you go in with that attitude, you're going to be much more successful at getting into business than the, 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 the 1,000 well, 1, other guy who's going to say, I want to do it, but I can't unless you pay me. That's never going to happen. I guarantee you. So that's my advice. Do that's that. pretty damn good advice. That's yeah. <laughs> you know, this is not what we do is not work. What we do is passion. It's artwork. You know, we can't get enough of it, no matter how hard it gets. And it gets hard. You know, this last project I just did, you know, I was up for 60 hours with one hour incremental sleep every 10 to 12 hours. And because I had to get a project done and, and I do that. I never complain. I, this is what I do. This is, you know, I just want to make, do the best job I can so I can present out to the world. It's a privilege for me to be able to, to show my work and to inspire a generation of artists. That's a privilege. And I take that very seriously. And so I don't complain about the long hours and the lack of sleep because I could be out there asking people, would you like fries with that, sir? So, you know, think about it, right? So that's my advice. Be passionate. If you're not passionate about it, it's not for you. Find it's, something else to be passionate about. That rem it's like I've heard people say like, oh, well, what advice do you give? And they, they, I've heard people say like, think about is there anything else you could see yourself being good at as a career? And if the answer to that question is yes, go for that. If the answer to that question is no, become a filmmaker. If it's like literally that's the only thing you can see yourself doing. Mm -hmm. And it's that's going to separate the people that, are have that hunger and the people that could go learn a trade and be successful there. Yeah, a filmmaker is even harder. The failure rate for filmmakers is so freaking high. You know, it, it, it's you know, I've I've made a bunch of movies. I've done a whole TV series. You know, I'm still trying to to, to make it. I I would say I'm not even successful, not even close, right? Because I'm still struggling to try to find the next job. So, you know, that is tough and then the amount of rejections you get and the amount of projects that gets greenlit and then completely disappears you know your hopes get high and then all of a sudden you're just body slammed over and over again over the years it can really screw you up so you have to kind of be mature enough to see the big picture and say hey this is what i'm getting into i'm going to be disappointed a lot i'm going to meet a lot of people who's going to try to screw me over i'm going to work with a lot of really cold-hearted assholes who's going to like 
just fucking hate on me and, and hate on everybody else. And, you know, it's it's really rough, man. And some of the worst times in my life was when I was making movies. But I love it so much, I'm willing to endure it. So, you know, it's not all glamorous like people say it is. Maybe for some people it is. I don't know. I've never met a filmmaker that is so glamorous. I, I've heard big directors talk about, like, you know, what is the, the best part, the worst part about making movies? They're like, making movies. That's the worst <laughs> right. part about making movies. You know, the best part, the worst part is making movies. Yeah. So, you know, everyone deals with it. So, I, yeah. I, I appreciate your honesty in that answer. I, I really, I really do. I have some, I have some friends who have been talking about they they want to do this. They're they're young. They're probably in their their early twenties. They went one actually went to the um uh, I I don't remember what film school, but he he went to I think the Stan Winston one, and uh, I think that that he'll appreciate that answer. So with that being said, is there anything that you're working on now that you can either tell us about or that you want to plug? And also, where can we find you online if we want to see your work or get in contact with you? Okay, um, yeah, there's a there's a script uh, that uh, that I co-wrote with my writing partner Aaron Dobson in the UK. Uh, called Terra that I'm trying to get financed, and uh, it's a it's a horror, uh, supernatural thriller, and um, it's it's a first for me, but I think the script's really good, and uh, and it's we're looking for investors right now, we're looking for somebody who wants to you know, give us money to make this movie, um, and uh, so that's that's that you know I'm talking to a few producers right now about the, that possibility. Hopefully I can get it off the ground, and. Um, so if anybody out there listening is a producer who even remotely likes what I do, to have a ton of money or have access to, you know, movie fund investors, whatever, whatever, I'm all ears. I would love to make this movie. Um, and then as far as uh, reaching me, uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, it's uh, Steve. My Instagram handle is Steve Wang Creature Creator. Um, also on Facebook, uh, I, I have a professional page, Steve Wang Creature Creator as well. So those are the two easiest way to, easiest ways to see uh, the work that I'm I'm putting out right now. Um, you know, my studio is Onyx Forge Studio, and we we're busy as hell. We make a lot of cool stuff. You know, we just put out this statue of Lilith for Diablo Four for. Uh, oh yeah, Tango. my brother was yeah. is super excited about that game. Yeah, so we just finished putting that statue out. Now it's all over the interwebs. People can look at it. You know, and and. You know, we're, we're just very blessed, very happy that, you know, a lot of high-profile companies really respect the kind of stuff we do and want to work with us. And we just get to make cool shit for a living, and that's awesome. Well, Steve, listen, we really appreciate your time. Thank you for being so generous with it and answering all of our gobs of questions. And open invite if you ever want to come on and talk about, honestly, anything. Okay. Just uh, thank you for, for taking the time no, to chat th with us. This has been amazing. Oh, for the record, Les Claypool's IMDb and Wikipedia – Say <laughs> have him credited for Kung Fu Rascals. <laughs> so someone please fix that. Um, yeah. But He's no, tricked by thinking, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, Steve, this has been amazing. Like, it's a dream come true. I mean, I, I get it. You guys are freelance and everything. But, I mean, just your catalog and is just so incredibly prolific. And I know you said you haven't made it and I get what you mean, but I mean, to guys like us, I mean, you're a legend and you're inspirational and everything that you've done continues to inspire young filmmakers and, and fans. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Um, and yeah, just just thank you again, not only for coming on here, but for all the awesome work you've 
given us just content wise um, and being such a big inspiration for people that um, are going to see your work and it's going to be like, hey, I want to do that. I mean, you might not think so, but I guarantee you somewhere there's a kid that like was traumatized by the Giver when they were seven and they're like, <laughs> I want to create some crazy looking creatures like that. And they're probably in, you know, art school or something like that. So just thank well, you for everything. <laughs> that's great. As long as they don't come knocking on my door saying, I got a score to settle with you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but no, I mean, just thanks for for everything, and just I know you're gonna continue to pump out awesome stuff. So, well, thank you, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking about stuff. I don't, I don't get to talk about this stuff very often, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a real pleasure, real fun, and uh, yeah, thank you guys again. All right, thanks so much. All right, take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.